Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves and what it means to be fully adopted into the family of God. We hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith. If you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes. Here's John. In this session, we're going to be continuing our thought concerning what it means to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to be focusing our attention particularly on the responsibility we have to exercise faith in what Jesus has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. I'd like for you to continue to study with me now in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we're going to be looking at some promises here in the next few verses, some commands and then promises that are exceedingly important in the development and growth of our lives as functional human beings, as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, we're instructed by way of exercising our faith to count on the fact, the glorious fact, that we are dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now to tie this in with what we've been studying so far in the Alpha series itself, it's important that we go back and remember that right from the outset we were concerned with a brand new identity. Right from the outset, we were concerned to be able to identify ourselves in a positive light. It was not just our own self-image that we're concerned about, or neither is it just what other people think about us, but what we were concerned about originally in our study is to know the truth about who God sees us as. Nowhere is that truth revealed any clearer than in Romans chapter 6. And here he tells us a most amazing, a most astounding fact that God, to set us free from the bondage of sin, has actually crucified us with Christ, the old persons we were, dysfunctional, depraved as we were, buried us in Christ, and raised us up as brand new creatures to walk in newness of life with Christ. Therefore, we are called upon to believe in this fact. When he says in verse 11, count on the fact, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead, means count on the fact that you are dead to sin and alive unto God. Count on the fact that you are a brand new person in Christ Jesus. Now, I want us to continue that thought with verse 12 and forward now. And if you'll read with me, he says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. In these verses, Paul is contrasting for us two lifestyles, two different ways for us to live. And I want to try to illustrate those two lifestyles now that are both conditioned upon what he has already called us to do in verse 11. That is to believe that we are in fact dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. First of all, he, begins out neg- he starts out negatively by saying, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. In order to understand what he means by sin, we're going to have to do a little equation here that sin is not just the things that we do outwardly, transgressing God's law. It's not just behavior. Frequently, or most always in the Bible, whenever you read the word sin, it's not just talking about our external behavior. It's not talking about the things that we might do that are wrong, like lying or cheating or stealing or something of that nature. Sin, in the singular, refers to unbelief at its core. Unbelief. 
really means that we are not trusting what God says is true about us or about him or about the world around us. If you could imagine a, a sin as being somewhat of an object, and, a, and let's just say it's a blob of sin lying here on the floor. On one side you would see the word unbelief, and if you walked over and kicked it over, on the other side you would see pride. And the reason for that is the unbelief in what God has done and is now doing for us and will continue to do for us is actually a substitute for pride in our own ability to control our lives, in our own ability to run our lives. This one fact, I think, in the Christian life is particularly salient, that we as Christians particularly struggle with the issue of pride in our lives. Oh, we are grateful that God has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We are grateful for the good news that when we believe in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we don't have to die and go to hell. We are grateful that we have a place of assurance for us in heaven. However, when it comes to living our daily lives, we still like to be in charge, to be in control, to say that we know what's best for our lives. This comes from that fleshly nature that we were talking about earlier that I want us to elaborate a little bit on here in terms of sin. Sin is really the unbelief of what God is saying is true about us. Now let's see where this comes into our life. Remember our diagram of our personality, structure, and content, and the fact that God has created a brand new person in us, this new man, or I'm going to call him the inward man, like Paul does in Romans chapter 7, he refers to this new person as the inward man, is surrounded by a body that contains the same body that we lived in before that contains the habit and nature of unbelief or what we're simply identifying as sin here. So we're going to label that as the nature of the flesh. We're going to call that the flesh. We'll be describing some characteristics of the flesh a little later on. Paul gives us a, a picture of what the flesh and the works of the flesh are in Galatians chapter 5. But this flesh is to be distinguished from the real person we are. Even though both the flesh and the new person live in the same body. And this is the problem that we Christians have. We are a brand new creature created in Christ but we still have stored within our subconscious mind, or what the Bible calls the heart, we still have this nature of flesh or unbelief, which is here called sin in Romans chapter 6, verse 12. And so let's read that verse again to put this now, this information in this context. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. What he means for us to understand about that, it's a command, and he means for us to, to quit refusing to believe what God has just told us in Romans 6 is true about ourselves. Now this is so difficult for us to understand. Let me go over this very carefully with you. You see, God has just given us some information in chapter 6 of Romans that is astounding. It's amazing. It, it goes against all of our experience. It runs contrary to all the experience in our life that we actually were crucified. That old sinful person that had that natural identity we grew up thinking of ourselves as, that person actually died and was buried with Christ and a brand new person was raised up. This is so foreign to our experience that we have this natural tendency not to believe it's true about us. When he tells us to count on the fact that it's true about us, he immediately follows up with saying, don't continue to allow sin to reign in your mortal body. The reign of sin in our mortal body is not just that we do things that are wrong. It's not just that we lie or we cheat or we steal externally in behavior, but the real problem where the reign of sin is, where the domination of sin is in our life, is in the unbelief concerning what God says he's done to make us a brand new person. You see, this, this is where it all starts from. It starts within our heart, within our mind, and what we think about ourselves. And when we refuse to believe what God says is true about us, then we, we get a little squirrely. 
to be honest with you, we just get weird. And the reason we get weird is because we're thinking of ourselves as being insecure or insignificant or unworthy. And when we start thinking about ourselves, if I'm, let me just do this little exercise with you. If I'm thinking about myself as being insecure, I'm not loved. Nobody loves me. Nobody accepts me. Everybody's going to reject me. Nobody forgives me. They hold grudges against me. And if I'm thinking of myself as being insignificant, well, I'm just not important. I'm just a meaningless nobody. My life has no purpose to it at all. And I'm inadequate. I can't do anything. You ever get a serious case of the I can'ts? You know what I'm talking about? I can't do this. I can't stand anymore. I can't take it anymore. You get a serious case of the I can'ts, you're thinking of yourself as being inadequate. Well, what I'm thinking is, as I was just describing that thought process, which is not all that unusual, if we're honest with ourselves, is that's not an unusual thought process. As a matter of fact, that happens to kind of creep in on us on a daily basis. But when I'm describing that thought process, do you notice who we're thinking about at that time? Invariably, we're thinking about ourselves only. That's what makes us self-centered. That's what blocks us in our relationships to other people. That's what keeps us from reaching out to and loving other people. So when we're in this unbelief concerning what God has done to make us worthy, what God has done to make us secure and significant, what God has done to actually make us this brand new person in Christ, when we are, are in unbelief of this flesh nature, we are thinking of ourselves as being the old man that Romans chapter 6 says was crucified and buried once and for all. And when we think of ourselves as being that old person, we feel like the old man. But you know the old man doesn't feel good? The old man feels nervous. He feels anxious all the time. The old man feels depressed. He feels sorry for himself. The old man feels bitter and hateful all the time. And when we think of ourselves as being the old man, we feel like the old man. And guess what's going to happen then? That's right, we're going to act like the old man. And then we're going to say to ourselves, aha, we are the old man. Nothing's changed. We're the same old person we were before. Why? Because sin, unbelief, is reigning in our mortal body, in the presence of the flesh. Now, there's a war that ensues. We're going to be talking about this conflict between the new person you are, but here we're instructed in verse 12 to say, Simply don't allow, keep on allowing sin to reign, to have control, to dominate your mortal body. Go on with me and read in the next verse, or the second part of the verse, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. The lust there are the feelings. I know when we use the term lust today in our modern English, we almost exclusively refer to it as having something to do with sexual or sensual uh, feelings. But really, lust in the, in the King James English here is translated from a Greek word that just simply means any strong desire. And it fits in our emotional categories of, of having strong desires that are brought on by false assumptions concerning what we think we need. For instance, we may have an overwhelming strong desire for a relationship with a particular person, thinking that we've got to have that relationship or we cannot be secure or significant as people. Or we may have a strong desire or lust for a particular job, thinking we've got to have that job or we'll never be able to be worthy. You see, we can have strong desires for anything. Where do these strong desires come from? They come from the reign of sin. They come from not believing that we are worthy as we are. They come from the fact of this unbelief that he says he, we are not to allow to reign in our mortal body. He says, if you allow it to reign in your mortal body, you're going to obey the lust thereof, and that's going to show up behaviorally in the little verse, in the next verse, verse 13, a little statement, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. In other words, we're going to yield our members, that's the particular parts of our body, to do and say things that will characterize this unbelief. Externally, we are going to be transgressing God's law because internally we're refusing to believe God's gospel. Now, let me illustrate this in our little diagram here concerning our thoughts, our feelings, and our, 
and our behavior. Remember that diagram? It starts out, first of all, with what we're thinking. Because in our thoughts, we have unbelief. We are going to feel bad. Now, you can put any term you want in there. What I say is feel squirrely. That means you're upset. Or feel freaked out. That means you're losing it. Uh, you can use any kind of terminology you want. But those feelings are not only going to be negative, they're also going to be sinful feelings that we discussed in earlier sessions. So our thoughts are going to produce feelings in us that are negative and bad and sinful and therefore destructive, bringing death into our life, and that's going to cause us to behave in a negative way as well. We are going to do and say things that are wrong because we're feeling bad because we're thinking wrong. Remember that little cycle? The Bible describes it as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now, in order to not allow sin to reign in our mortal body, we've got to realize where sin reigns. Where it reigns in our mortal body is not in our big toe. It doesn't reign in our big toe. Where it reigns in our mortal body is between our own ears, in our mind. Where it reigns in our mortal body is in our thoughts, in that daily self-talk, where we refuse to believe that we're brand new creatures in Christ, even though God has made us new creatures in Christ, where we refuse to believe we are secure in God and his goodness and that we are significant in his plan and in his power. When we refuse to believe that, sin is reigning in our mortal body. So it's really unbelief that causes the domination of sin in our life, which produces feelings of lust, and we actually engage in unrighteous, word is unrighteous, unrighteous behavior. Now, when we have thoughts producing unrighteous behavior, the mediation here is the feeling or the lusts of the flesh, which normally we justify. Did you know that? Normally, we spend most of our day justifying why we feel rotten when he tells us here in Romans 6:12, not to let sin reign in our mortal body, we don't even think about that. What we think about naturally is justifying why we've got all these lusts, these strong desires, and why we are feeling so bad. And we run around trying to find people we can justify that to. You know a definition of a friend? A friend will listen to you whine about your lusts. That's a friend. If you can find somebody that will listen to you whine about all your lusts, then you've found a friend. And I've heard people whine about not having a friend. You know why I've heard them whine about not having a friend? Because their friends are sick of listening to them whine about all their lusts. All right? Now, what I'm getting to is what he's calling us to here is a lot deeper issue than just rationalizing our feelings or going ahead and acting out in any fashion what we feel like doing to make ourselves feel better. He's calling us to get down to the real issues that we grapple with of unbelief every day in our life. That's how we quit allowing sin to reign. So let's describe that as in accordance with the verses here. In the middle of verse 13, you'll see him give us a contrast that suggests an alternative lifestyle here. You'll see him switch, if you will, to show us a better way to live. There's a better way to live than to continue to allow unbelief and pride to reign in your body, to continue to allow that sin to take over and cause those feelings that we try to justify to control our behavior. There's a better way, and that way begins right in the middle of verse 13 with a little biblical but. A biblical but. I love biblical buts. Biblical buts are a strong contrast. In the original language, in the Greek, this word is actually Allah, which is, a, which is an adversative Allah, which means it's in strong contrast to what he just said. This is one of the strongest ways you can express it in the original language. Instead of this natural lifestyle, and isn't this natural? Before we go on, isn't this natural? I mean, it's so natural to have unbelief concerning who we are. It's so natural to feel squirrely every day, and it's so natural to screw up. This is natural. This is a natural lifestyle. This is the way what we're used to all our lives. 
growing up. But in contrast to that, he's giving us now a better way to live. That better way to live begins in verse 13 when he says, Instead of yielding yourselves to sin and your instruments or your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. Now let's talk about that for a moment. This is going to be real important. Let's talk about yielding ourselves to God as those that are alive from the dead. I've worked with many Christians over the last 20 years of ministry who have, from time to time, tried to yield themselves to God. I grew up in a conservative Baptist tradition, and every message, at the end of every message in the church, there was an invitation given. And frequently you would see people who would come down the aisle to rededicate their life to Jesus. And they were, in all sincerity, trying to yield themselves to God. But I noticed that sometimes the same people would come down week after week after week to dedicate their lives unto God. They would always be rededicating their lives unto God. You see, Baptists have to believe that because they don't believe you can lose your salvation. Now, Pentecostals and other groups, they believe you can lose your salvation so they don't have to rededicate their lives to God. They can get born again, again. And pretty soon they're born again, again, again. You see, what I'm describing here is the process that people go through in trying to yield themselves unto God. But you see, what he's called us to is a very special thing here. He's called us to yield ourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. Now, let me describe what that means. In order to yield yourself to God as those that are alive from the dead, you must first believe that you die. You cannot yield yourself to God as those that are alive from the dead unless you believe you've been crucified with Christ and that you actually died. You see, he's calling, he's calling of us to a very special thing here when he says yield yourself to those, uh, yield yourself to God as those that are alive from the dead. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. Suppose I wanted to yield myself to God as, as one who's alive from the dead. I can go to God and I can say, God, I really want to do whatever you want me to do, God. Anything you want me to do, I'll do. I know I'm worthless. I know I'm no good. I know I'm a rotten husband and a terrible father. I know I'm terribly lazy on the job. I know I've got all these addictions that are troubling me and bothering me. I know I've just got sin oozing out of every pore of my body. I know I'm just this worthless earthworm, but God, I'm giving myself to you, so you do whatever you want to with me. That's yielding yourself to God as one who's dead in sins and trespasses. But listen to how different this sounds. Father, I thank you that you have made me a brand new creature in Christ. I thank you that you have blessed me with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies already. I thank you that I have been seated in the heavenlies in your Son, Jesus Christ, far above all principality and power. I thank you that I am holy and without blame before you in love. I thank you that you have forgiven me of all my sins and trespasses. I thank you that you crucified that old person I was and buried that person that rotten person with Christ, and you raised up a brand new person in Christ Jesus. I thank you, Father, for that, and I want to serve you with all my heart. Please use me, Father. You all see the difference in that? Isn't there a radical difference? One is a false humility, by the way. A false humility is when you run around broadcasting how worthless you are compared to other people, hoping that somebody will come to you and say, they're there now, you're not really that bad, and build you up. That's false humility. True humility is when you believe what the Word of God says is true about you. Father, I am worthy because you've made me to be worthy in your Son, Jesus. And I yield myself to you as those that are alive from the dead. You see, this is how we break the reign of sin in our life. The way we break the reign of sin is actually to believe the truth of the Word of God and what he says he's done for us already. Now, a lot of Christians get confused about this, and probably the most 
common question I get when I teach this is how come I've been a Christian 40 years and I've never heard this? How come I've been a Christian and no one's ever bothered to tell me this? I don't have a real good answer for that other than just to simply tell you that the church has typically allowed the gospel to be watered down. 200 years ago, when you read the writings of men like Charles Spurgeon and others, and especially um, the writings that have to do with the exposition of Romans, you'll find men were preaching and teaching this kind of commonplace. It would be nothing for a school-aged child to be able to explain to you what Romans 6 means, like I've been able to explain to you 200 years ago in church history. But you see, we've watered the gospel down. And there, as a result, there are a lot of folks who are running around. Yes, they're born again. Yes, they're Christians. Yes, they know Jesus is their personal Savior. But their life is a mess. The gospel that we are called to believe in is the gospel or good news that Jesus Christ has made us worthy. It's that gospel we are to believe consistently to keep the reign of sin from dominating not only our thoughts, but our feelings and our behavior as well. Now, the promise that he gives us concerning this gospel is found in this second part of verse 13 when he says, Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. This is an exceedingly beautiful thing, that we can actually be used as an instrument of God, that we can actually give our mouth to God to be used to speak through. One of the most important considerations I have in this entire series is for you folks who are watching this on video, this is a training tool to train you in what the gospel is and in how to share it with another in a practical and meaningful way. The, just think about the astounding fact that God can use you. I know the religious world has told you that he only uses clergy folks. The religious world has told you that the only persons that can really speak the gospel eloquently are preachers or pastors, ministers of some sort, in the professional clergy. But the Word of God says, and we'll study this out later, that you are to yield your mouth as an instrument of righteousness, that you are to speak the truth of the gospel that you're learning about to others on a daily basis. You see, this is where the power really comes from. The power really comes from the fact that all believers are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when he calls us to yield ourselves as those that are alive from the dead, he is calling on us not only to believe the truth of the gospel, not only to experience the hope of that truth in our life, but also to live it out in relationship to other people as well. Now, I want to put on the board for you a little words that will be key words, key motivational words that we'll continue to study uh, throughout the remaining portion of this series that begin, first of all, with our responsibility to believe. It's the word faith. In our thoughts, we must have faith concerning what God has done for us in Christ we could not do for ourselves. Faith concerning the fact that we are this new creature created in Christ Jesus. Faith that we are no longer the flesh. We are no longer to identify ourselves as the flesh. Faith to believe that we are, in fact, brand new persons in Christ. And when that faith is in place, when we believe that we have been crucified with Christ and been raised up with Christ, we have in our feelings hope rather than the sense of lust or ultimately guilt that is produced from those lusts. In contrast to the unbelief or fear that is natural in our natural lifestyle, we now have faith. And out of that faith comes hope, hope that we are this brand new person. Now remember, hope is not wishful thinking. Wishful thinking is when you go out and buy a lotto ticket and you, you're wishing that you'll win the lotto ticket. That's not the biblical concept of hope. The biblical concept of hope is a joyful confident expectation about your future. That's what hope is, and it's produced by believing that you're this brand new person. So this faith you have in the gospel produces hope in your soul. And that hope or that confidence 
of knowing that you're okay because of what God has made you to be in Christ is what frees you up then to love others. And this is what he means by yielding your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You're yielding your members to be used of God to care about the necessities of other people, to care about their needs, to care about their feelings, to care about their situation, even as God cared about yours in Christ Jesus. Now this is a radically different lifestyle that I've just described for you. A radically different lifestyle than the natural lifestyle conditioned by fear, guilt, and ultimately pride. This lifestyle that is so radically different because of the gospel is conditioned by faith, working itself out in hope and ultimately freeing you to love others. Now, when we talk about recovery from any type of dysfunction, when we talk about recovery from addictions of various sorts or recovery from codependence or recovery from any type of dysfunction produced by the sin condition, what we're talking about is not just simply not doing what's wrong. We're talking about living a brand new lifestyle. We're talking about actually entering into a brand new life like Christ. It's what he called us to back in verse 4 of chapter 6, remember? He said, the reason God crucified the old man, put him to death, and raised up a new man is so that we could walk in newness of life, in a new, a brand new lifestyle. That's the whole point of what he's telling us this gospel for. So in verses 12 through 13, he is telling us to walk in this new lifestyle. How do we walk in that? It begins by faith, faith in who we are, producing in us the hope of being raised up from the dead, being raised up from our dysfunction so that we can go on to love others. One other comment now about being presenting ourselves as those that are alive from the dead. There is nothing more exhilarating in our experience than cl coming close to death, but getting out of it. Nothing, there's no rush quite like being shot at and missed. Did you know that? That is a tremendous rush. You are, in effect, in effect alive from the dead. And you have tremendous And it frees you up then to quit worrying about yourself. And you can begin to think about others which leads us to love. This is what we're called to. This is the new lifestyle that he's given us. This is the functional lifestyle. Now let's just take a moment to apply that in our everyday situations. Can you imagine what it would be like for husbands and wives as they try to relate to each other on a day-in, day-out basis to actually operate on faith concerning what God has made them to be, this new person, rather than fear due to unbelief? Can you imagine the difference in their conversation between each other when that faith works out hope in their heart and frees them to actually love one another like God loves them? You see, that's what makes a healthy marriage. Can you imagine what it's like when parents, likewise, believing the gospel about who they are, having hope concerning their own needs, are free indeed to love their children, to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? That's what makes a functional home, a functional family system. It is this new lifestyle that enables us to live in a healthy and functional way. Otherwise, we're going to be, according to the old lifestyle, always in fear due to unbelief, always chasing after lust and, and ending up with guilt, and finally, always trying to make ourselves look good in prideful attempts by, through acts of unrighteousness. You see, the... Natural lifestyle is dysfunctional. It doesn't work. The supernatural lifestyle that he's calling us to here is the only healthy way, really, to live. Now let's go on to look at the promise now in verse 14. He gives us a very powerful promise that I want all of us to be able to relate to and share. He says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. This reign of sin, this domination of dysfunction in your life shall not always have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now the first thing I want you to see about this promise is how tremendous it is. 
For some of us who struggle with life-controlling issues of one sort or another, we get the idea that this will never go away. It'll always be like this. I can never get out of this mess. But what he's telling you here is that's not true. It's just simply not true about you. Sin shall not have dominion over you with all of its effects of death in your life. You're going to be free. God's plan of salvation, you see, doesn't just start, start and stop with you not going to hell when you die, and neither does it just only concern this life now, but his plan of salvation includes that which is to come in the future. It includes the fact, the glorious fact, that one day you're going to be set free from the habit and power of sin in your life permanently. That means forever. And how is he going to do that? When this body of ours, this body of flesh, dies and returns to the dust from which it was taken, what happens is it goes back to the dust. That fleshly nature that is inhabiting that body is actually dispersed. And what goes to heaven is that brand new person that God has made you to be. And when it gets to heaven, it receives a glorified body that matches its righteous condition and is set free finally from the habit and power of sin forever. This is salvation not only from the power of sin or the, the pre penalty of sin, but rather salvation from the very presence of sin. Now, we have to wait till we get to heaven to get that. Because you see, as long as we have this body, this same old sin-cursed body we were born with, we're going to have the indwelling nature of sin. It's going to continue to raise its ugly head. And so we're going to have a continuous struggle against that nature of sin within us. Day in and day out, we're going to have a struggle. So what we're concerned with at this point, until we get to final deliverance, final salvation from the very presence of sin, we're going to need to be concerned with what God has done and is doing now to continually, day by day, save us from the habit and dominion of sin. This promise that we just read in verse 14 is a promise that that day is coming, that the glorious day is coming, where sin will never again have dominion over you. And you can begin now to experience that for this reason. Look again at the last part of verse 14. For you are not under the law, but under... And here the apostle begins to introduce us to a very important designation of these two lifestyles I've been talking about. I want to go ahead and label them for you in this session so that we can study them later. The lifestyle that is so natural, the lifestyle of, of unbelief, the lifestyle of sin and unbelief and fear leading to lust and guilt and unrighteousness and pride, that lifestyle is conditioned by the law. And we're going to have to understand our relationship to the law and define this law as we go along in our study, but this is what he calls being under the law. Because you see, God's intent for the law was to use the law to prove the whole world guilty, to prove that everybody is in need of a Savior because they can't save themselves. And all who are under the law then fall into this natural characteristic of this natural lifestyle. The motives in that natural lifestyle are fear, guilt and pride. You're always afraid because whatever the law commands, you're afraid you can't do it. You might not meet up to it. You're always guilty because you've already broken the law, and you're always in pride because you're trying to cover up your transgressions like kitty litter. You're trying to get rid of it, and you cover it up with prideful attempts. That's the natural lifestyle of law. He says you're no longer under the law. And it's important that we realize that we are not under the law. This is something we'll be developing a little later. But instead, you're under grace. I call this new lifestyle of faith, hope, and love a lifestyle of grace. 
because it is by God's grace that we can even enter into this lifestyle in the first place, and it's by God's grace that we continue in this lifestyle day in and day out. Now, the promise he gives us in verse 14 is that sin shall not have dominion over us because we're not under the lifestyle of law, but under the lifestyle of grace. And in order to see the real contrast between those two, I'm going to have, have to ask you to turn in your Bibles to another passage of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3, we're going to look at a contrast between these two lifestyles, a lifestyle between law and grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning, we're going to break into the context again here, and we're going to begin in verse 5. He says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. And let me explain the context for you. What he's saying is that we have to trust God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's what he means by our sufficiency is of God. But he goes on to say, who also has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And here the contrast in verse 6 is between the letter, or what we've designated as the law, and the Spirit, or what we've designated as grace. There's a big contrast between these two that I want to at least introduce to you in this session because we'll spend a great deal of time looking at how we're going to live this new lifestyle out. How we're going to live this new lifestyle of grace requires an understanding of the contrast between that lifestyle of grace versus law. So let's just take a few points of contrast very quickly. First of all, he says, we are able ministers of the New Testament. Now, the term New Testament means a new covenant, and it needs to be understood in contrast with what is referred to as the Old Covenant. Don't let the word testament or covenant throw you now. The word testament or covenant just simply means a contract. You're all familiar with that. When you go buy a new car or you go buy a house, you sign a contract. Actually, what you're doing is entering into a covenant agreement. In the Old Testament, Back in Moses' day, God made a covenant of law with his people, Israel. He said, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. And here's the covenant. You do what I tell you to do. You behave yourself, and I'll bless you. If you don't do what I tell you to do, if you don't behave yourself, I'll curse you. Does that sound familiar to you folks? Does that, that kind of a covenant sound familiar? Isn't that really the kind of covenant we're used to entering into with all kinds of people? If I behave myself, I'll get blessed. If I don't behave myself, I'll get cursed. It's a covenant of law that is dependent upon your behavior. It's a covenant that's dependent upon your ability to perform according to the demands of the covenant. Now, in contrast to that, he says, we are able ministers of the new covenant. And I just want to share this new covenant with you because it's such a beautiful thing that God has called us to. He has made a new covenant with us. Jeremiah, the prophet, is the first one to reveal this new covenant to us in its, in its details, although it was pictured earlier in Abraham's day. Jeremiah gives us the specific terms of the covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31, he says, God said, I'm going to make a new covenant because the old covenant didn't work. You all know why the Old Covenant didn't work, don't you? When Moses was up on the mountain, you remember Moses, Charleston Heston, remember that guy, Moses? When he was up on the mountain and he was getting the law and he brought the law down off the mountain, what were the people doing down at the bottom? They were all violating every one of the commandments contained in that Old Covenant. God said, I'll bless you if you behave yourself, but I'll curse you if you don't. And while Moses was getting that covenant, the people were not behaving themselves. And they never have been able to behave themselves. So in Jeremiah 31, God said this. He said, I'm going to make a new covenant, a new covenant with Israel and with my people. And this is the term of the new covenant. He says, I'm going to, first of all, write my law on their inward part. Now, I want you all to make this connection on our diagram that this new person that God has made us to be here is actually, this new person is the, right, is the work of the Holy Spirit where he has written his law on our hearts. 
he is actually talking about this inward man when he says, I'll write my law on their inward parts or on their heart. I'll put a new person in there that behaves himself is really what he's saying. And the second condition of the new covenant is not only will I put a new person in there that behaves himself, but I will also be his God and he will be my people. In other words, what he's saying is I will have personal, intimate communion and fellowship with him. What this means, in fact, is that the Holy Spirit lives inside of this new person. God himself lives in this new person. As we studied in our previous sessions, the gospel is that not only do we go into Christ, but Christ comes into us, so we are one with him. We are enmeshed with Christ. And the third part of that new covenant, he says, your sins and your iniquities I'll remember no more. Now, you and I will remember them because of that subconscious mind, won't we? Can't you remember things that you've done that are wrong, that occasionally come up? And just take this moment just to reflect for a minute on things, something that you've done in the past that's wrong. I'd be willing to take, bet it would only take about 10 seconds to think of something, right? Because you can remember your sins and your iniquities. But if you've confessed that before God and you've gone to him and you've received his cleansing and you have become a new person and you go ask God if he remembers that, he's going to say, no, I don't remember it anymore. Your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. You're forgiven. Now, note the contrast here between the old and new covenant. The old covenant is a covenant of law that says, if you behave yourself, I'll bless you. If you don't behave yourself, I'll curse you. The new covenant is a covenant of grace that says, I'm going to bless you by putting a new person in you that will behave itself. I'm going to bless you by having close, intimate fellowship and union with that new person. I'm going to bless you by remembering your sins and iniquities no more. You see the contrast between that? Here's where the promise of verse 14 comes in that we read back in Romans chapter 6. The promise is this, that sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are no longer under the law, but under grace. You're no longer under the old covenant, but you're under now the new covenant. Now, let's see another point of contrast here. As we close and wind down our session, I want you to see this other contrast. He mentions the fact that we are ministers of the New Testament, or New Covenant, not of the letter. He uses the ter term letter here to describe the law. Letter is a very useful term because, you see, the letter of the law is not just the law itself, but it's your own interpretation of the law. If you know anything at all about our judicial system, you know how lawyers are hired to interpret the law and how judges are required to interpret the law. The letter of the law is not just what was stated in the law, it's how we interpreted it. And we as Christians living under the law are always weaseling around trying to figure out a different interpretation of the law. That's the letter of the law. We read something in the Bible, like my favorite command in the New Testament. My favorite command in over 1,000 commands in the New Testament is Philippians 2.14. You know what that says? It says, do everything without murmuring and disputing. You know what that means? It means you're to do everything without complaining and moaning about it. That's my favorite command in the New Testament. If that actually was lived out, do you know how much silence there would be in this world? We would have hardly anything to talk about at all if we actually lived that commandment of God. But you see, you take any one of those commandments and then you begin to interpret what he means by it. Your interpretation of what he means by that commandment is the letter of the law. That letter of the law is what actually gets us into trouble because the letter of the law is our interpretation of what we think the law really means. He says, we are not ministers of the letter of the law. That means it's not our job to run around telling people what God's Ten Commandments means in their life. We are not ministers of the letter of the law, but of the Spirit. Why? Because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And this is the only point of contrast that I want you to see. This law system and the legal mentality with all its interpretations will never get us ahead. It will actually bring forth death in our emotional condition and in our behavior. It'll bring forth death also in our relationships. 
Now you begin to see why when God created Adam and Eve and he put him in a garden with all these fruit trees to eat and he put one tree in the middle of that garden that he designated as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he commanded them, don't eat of that because the knowledge of good and evil is the law. He says, don't try to draw your life from the law. Don't try to figure out what's right and wrong and do what's right and not do what's wrong. Don't try to enter in to a relationship with me according to the law. It won't work. The letter kills. You cannot live under the law. You can merely die under the law. It's absolutely impossible for us to know life by the law. Now, how do we live then? If we don't live under the law, the only way we can live is under grace. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Let me comment quickly about the spirit now. The Holy Spirit is the one who communicates life to us. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us new life when we receive Jesus Christ. He's the one that crucifies that old person we were in Adam and raises up a brand new person. He's the one that seals us and regenerates us. He's the one that gives us true life. Under grace, the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers you, that makes your decisions. He's the one that leads you and directs you. Therefore, the Spirit gives life, but the letter kills. May the Lord grant us the wisdom we need to live by faith in the Spirit in His grace. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 